Welcome to the Variety Hour, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mouth. I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Welcome to Talk Money. And now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, welcome to the Brave Days program. And, you know, I'm just glad to have you. Thanks for listening. Here's the question for the day. Is this the year? The year you're going to hang it up and retire? And what questions should you be asking yourself? Or what questions should you be asking other people? What are, the, what are you thinking about? What's going on in your mind? Well, from an article in the Wall Street Journal, Senator Rob Portman, a Republican from Ohio, stated, Each day, 10,000 baby boomers retire and begin receiving Medicare and Social Security benefits. Now, my simple math says that's about 4 million people a year retiring, and about 41% of that Group finds themselves running out of money or fear running out of money. My guest today is David Rochester. He is a retirement income certified professional, and he is going to answer your questions about what to do before you retire. Also with me is Cooper Smith. Tips for the first time home buyer. I wish I had talked with Cooper before I bought my first house. I might not have had many as many problems as I ended up having about 30, 40 years ago. If you know someone who is thinking about buying a house, take notes, or better yet, give them a call and tell them to join us this morning and find out just what are the tips Cooper will be sharing with us today. Well, from our Did You Know file segment, President Trump's fiscal year 2020 budget plan that was released on March the 11th calls for $3.6 trillion of tax revenue and $4.7 trillion of outlays or expenses, resulting in a $1.1 trillion deficit for the 12 months ending September the 30th of 2020. Now, that's equal to $10 billion of daily tax revenue Versus, that's income, versus $13 billion of daily expenses. That's just a $3 billion shortfall. That's just another day with a budget and a few extra zeros. I can't do my budget that way, but I'm not the United States government. That's information just published from the White House, so I thought I'd keep you up to date with it. The Department of Labor released some information, I think it's interesting, that the year-over-year increase in the average hourly earnings of all private sector workers was up 3.4% in February of 2019. That's wages that was $27.66 per hour in February of 2019 versus $26.75 an hour in February of 2018. That's the largest year-over-year percentage increase reported in the private sector since April of 2009. Congratulations, workers. That's more money in your pocket. Here's something I think you'll find very interesting. American taxpayers pay an estimated 84% of the federal income tax that would be collected if all taxpayers were 100% honest in completing their tax returns. 
that 84% is called the voluntary compliance rate, or VCR. Well, Germany, if you want to compare how our 84% is doing, Germany's VCR is 68%, and Italy's VCR is 62%. So it says, this comes from the Internal Revenue Service. So congratulations, America. You are being honest. But, you know, I never really thought of paying taxes as voluntary. Just wasn't in my thinking. It's, I don't see it as voluntary. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. To divine today's program or podcast or past programs, go to iTunes and search for Shoemaker Financial. And be sure to like us on Facebook. Coming up, retirement income certified professional David Rochester. Questions to get answered before you retire. And Cooper Smith, tips for the first-time homebuyers. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107. This is Talk Money. Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Jim Shoemaker, David Rochester, and Cooper Smith are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, I want you to think about it. 10,000 to 11,000 baby boomers retiring daily, receiving Medicare, Social Security benefits, about 4 million people a year. You know, the bottom line is that's a lot of people. And here's the problem. Most of 41% say running out of money is their top concern when it comes to retiring. That's, it doesn't make any difference where you are in the spectrum of high net worth or just barely going from paycheck to paycheck. Baby boomers are concerned about maintaining their current lifestyle and their spending level. Well, they got to maybe sometimes support children or even their own parents are still around. And so it's a concern. Well, my guest today, David Rochester, is a retirement income certified professional, and he's going to dive into us and with us and look at some of these questions that we need to be asking ourselves. What do we do before you retire? So, David, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Jim. Good to be with you this morning. Well, you know, again, that mic wasn't quite there, so say thank you one more time, David. Thank you, Jim. It's good to be with you this morning. (laughs) All right. Now, guys, here's the thing, David. I want to talk about this because, you know, there are specific issues that you see daily when you talk about retirement income planning that everybody should know, and yet it's they we all struggle with it because we all say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, and then all of a sudden, maybe it's this year, and or maybe it's next year, or whatever it is, but the reality is we start having to make those decisions, and it begins to pile up. It comes at us like a tsunami. It's just whether it's Medicare, whether it's my health insurance, whether how am I going to manage the money, all those questions. So can I ask a couple of questions that I know people ask, and we just kind of go through some process with you, and I guess the First one I want to ask, because it's kind of one that we see that's on a lot of people's mind, how critical, really, is it to have the right investment portfolio put together before a person retires? You know, Jim, I think that's what everybody wants to know. What is the perfect portfolio for a retiree? And, and really, that's not the most important decision, is what is the perfect portfolio. What's really more important is knowing that most of retirement income or retirement income for most Americans uh, is their pension income and their Social Security. Uh, that makes up more than half of most Americans' retirement income. 
So choosing when to claim Social Security benefits as well as when to retire, that date, that timing, has a much greater impact on their retirement security. So when you talk about pension income, are you talking about the 401k plan? They're, they're, self, they're one that they contribute to, or is it if they have a pension plan? If they have a pension plan. So if they've been fortunate enough, maybe they were a school teacher, worked for government, worked for uh, organizations that, that still have a pension, then having that income uh, come out of that is a guaranteed source. Okay, so I, I, I am looking at not so much the the perfect investment portfolio, you use that term, perfect. It's just knowing what income's coming in and how to calculate that. Exactly. And when we use the term mapping, uh, mapping your anticipated expenses during retirement versus your sources of income. Now, again, a lot of people look at their 401k and say, that's my source of income. That's where you've accumulated money for retirement. But then it, you've got to determine, does, does that need to be uh, turned into a source of retirement income? You know, David, that helps a lot because I think so many people get caught up in trying to make it the perfect portfolio or the perfect investment. And you're talking about trying to look at a bigger picture than trying to get down into the weeds. Now, it's important. I know it's important to have a good portfolio lined up. But it's not so that you're saying you gotta, it's got to be so perfect and because people just it, perfect's not a good word. That's exactly right, and, and I think the other thing is when you're when you're trying to be perfect, every mistake seems like a big mistake. And well, so, you know, an example would be if if you are so determined on having the quote perfect portfolio, and then we have a, a market reset or in large increasing interest rates and effects of portfolio, you might panic. Yeah. Good point. Good point. And panic's never good. That's correct. As, you know, from that standpoint. Well, let me ask you this because another question that we hear a lot is: Should everyone? I mean, it, we talk with Kurt Zarnowski almost on a regular basis, and he is always talking about Social Security, and he helps us understand that. But when, from your chair, when you think about what you're doing with a client, should everyone plan to retire and start taking their Social Security income at 65? I mean, he says, he actually says, we ought to, if we can, wait to 70. What's your take? Is No, that- I, I think that's right, and Kurt's a, a great authority on this. You know, a lot of times people confuse when they hear 65, they either remember when their parents or grandparents retired at 65 because that's when they had what we call full retirement uh, age for Social Security. But I think a lot of times people get that confused with when they apply for Medicare. Medicare application and Social Security application don't have to be a synonymous date. Okay, Medicare, you can turn on or will turn on at 65. But that does not mean you need to turn on your Social Security income. We can talk about that some more, but there are some big advantages to deferring when you start taking your Social Security income. All right. When you're, do you help a person look at all those different scenarios? I mean, I, I, to me, when you say that, okay, okay, uh, maybe I should defer. But is it really, isn't that based on my mortality? I mean, do if I know when I'm going to die... I defer, and if I'm going to live to be 95, it's probably better to defer. But if I'm only going to live to be 71, maybe it's not as good. I mean, so I don't know that. Yeah, well, Jim, that's a great point, and and I know we have to be careful about sharing statistics, but this is a pretty accurate statistic that one out of one people die. So we can Let me think about that. Let me think about that. That's pretty good. I can can agree with that that. So we're going to die, but it would be, I, I would think, extremely difficult to predict when, unless you choose to do it yourself. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, we don't know. No, we don't advocate that one. Either. That's exactly right. <laughs> and so, but people are living longer. When you look at medical advancements, when you look at technology, lifestyles, you know, people are eating better and treating their bodies better and exercising better than they used to. 
what the what we're seeing is people are living longer, and there's a greater chance without proper um, you know, advanced planning that, that they could outlive their money. And you could have retirement 30 years or longer. Well, I think I heard you say one time that the benefit of waiting to age 70 is 76% more than if you start at age 62. That's exactly right. So between 7 and 8% per year is gaining your Social Security benefit by deferring or delaying taking that benefit. Now, after age 70, there's no additional benefit to deferring. But so, and that is probably one of the most, I guess, generally thought of as the least expensive way to purchase more guaranteed income just by deferring. And that's, that's exactly uh, right. And yeah. guaranteed being the key word. You know, when we talk about 401k, you've got a lot of things that can affect that. But gear, having a guaranteed income is critical, really, to, to having a happy retiree. If I know that my expenses are met through sources of guaranteed income, I think I can more freely enjoy my retirement. That's a great point. If you just tuned in, my guest today, David Rochester, he is a certified professional. He is a retirement income certified professional. He's talking about the questions that maybe you should ask before you retire. And also joining us at this time is Cooper Smith. He's a financial advisor also at Shoemaker Financial. Cooper, let me ask you this question. We're going to give David a pause, but is it really complicated from your chair, when you think about working with a client to manage a ret- your retirement asset portfolio that they have enough income without losing principal, is it really that difficult to do that, or, or what's your thoughts? So so I would say, yes, it is complicated. Um, obviously, I don't think that anybody's got the market figured out. If they did, then that one person would probably be you know rich today. Um, but I think that a lot of times people view that reti- those retirement assets as one bucket, um, and really, you know, these are assets that they may need to get to in 20, 25 years. And they're treating that the same as assets that, that they're going to need in the first five years of retirement. Um, so a lot of times, you know, one of the things that I'll talk with clients about, too, is even splitting those buckets up, right? And even taking a chunk and managing it maybe for those first five, 10 years of retirement, taking another chunk, managing it for the next 10 years, and then having a long-term bucket, right? And each of those buckets is invested accordingly to that time horizon and risk tolerance of the client. That makes a lot of sense. So you're saying a bucket that's kind of in that first mm-hmm. part, the, the the part maybe that is most vulnerable, right. that it allows you to, if, the, if there is some correction in the mm-hmm. market, you got that bucket that's kind of liquid, or I won't say liquid, but kind of secure, right. and it allows you to weather the storm and let the other buckets kind of manage through the storm. Right. And and that's even where that mapping that you were talking about, David, is, is so powerful. I feel like so many people kind of have these lofty ideas of what they want retirement to look like, but don't ever take the time to hammer out not only what's it going to cost today, but what's it going to cost when they actually want to retire. Oh, that's great. Uh, so that, that mapping's huge and really gives people that clarity we were talking about of knowing, well, what's this even going to cost should I take Social Security early? Should I wait? And really mapping is the only way to kind of get that, that clarity that you All these for. questions are questions that you need to ask. Bottom line is before you retire. If you're asking them after you retire, it's a little late. Right. So, it's, you know, whether I mean, I think of people starting planning for retirement 10 to 15 years out so that it doesn't catch them by surprise. Mm-hmm. I was around the table just last night with a group of people that are all uh, – thinking about retiring or got some questions about and it is complicated it is a it is frustrating i mean whether it's making a decision about medicare and we have shannon to come on and talk about medicare or you, you got it do i take my 401 do i how and it is i mean all of a sudden you found people are kind of i don't know whether it's uh they're just deadlocked because so many things are coming at them and it's very very difficult because what decisions they make sometimes 
can be long-lasting mm-hmm. decisions. That I think overwhelming to... is a good word to yeah. use because you've been in the routine of your daily work, and all of a sudden, that's all getting ready to change. change. And you now you've got new factors you've never had to deal with, and I think the overwhelming well, uh, let me let me ask you this. I, I want to ask that question since you mentioned today, factors, because reality is, do you find that people fear, and I use that word fear, maybe get concerns, a better word or something, with spending principle? You know, they're 66, 67, 70, whatever, and they're in good health, and they think, oh, I don't really. How do you coach somebody through that mindset of, oh, I can't spend principle? That's a great question, Jim. And, and that age, I think, just like myself, we remember the days back in the 80s when you could get CDs paying double-digit returns. And so if you had enough income from those type of fixed investments, really worrying about principal wasn't as big of an issue. And Social Security probably made a bigger portion of overall retirement income needs at that point. So today, yeah, there's a concern because we're in a low-interest environment. And we, we really try to manage according to what we call total return. Some of your income will come from uh, dividends or interest off of investments. Some of it may come off of selling some assets at a gain. So it, it is total return we look more for today rather than just interest return. Well, I guess when you say total return, I want to make sure that we're clear on, on understanding total return. I, I know people use annuities. And they think of, I mean, I've heard you say annuities are income-oriented and, and investments, you think of growth or building. And I'm not saying one's better than the other. We, I mean, we can talk about annuities, but the reality is, in this total return mindset, give me the explanation of, of how do you share that with someone. Just, just say I'm in front of you right now, and I've got to make a decision. How would you talk to me about you only have so much dollars, and you need to look at total return. Explain that. Okay, sure. So as we know, total return is, is made up of a couple of things. First is dividends or income that come off of your investments. If you take that out and spend it, then you're not buying new shares of the investment. You're spending part of that return. But also, you might have some things that are stock-oriented or growth-oriented where there's been a price change, hopefully a growth price change, and you're going to sell some of that at a profit, right? you're going to use part of that as a source of income. So that becomes total return. When we look at growth plus dividend reinvestment income, that is your total return. Okay, so so you manage it all together from that standpoint. And you're, it, I like what you said, Cooper, with the buckets. So now help me with that. If I fear spending principal, give me the bucket scenario again. I put it in multiple different buckets to manage through different cycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I really just try and get a good idea of what that life is going to look like for the client during retirement. I'm trying to figure out, you know, how much money will they need at certain points in time? Do they feel like they're going to travel with the grandkids? Are they going to buy a new house? So I really want to make sure that we hammer down what that life is going to look like. And again, I keep going back to that, but I think that's just so important. I mean, really, you kind of build everything based off that. Obviously, everybody's situation is different, um, but I, I just think it's so important to tailor it to the specific person. All right, David, let me ask you this question. we got just one or two more questions to go. We might have to take a break here in a second. But does it really take much money to have a successful retirement? Is I mean, do everybody say, I just don't have enough. You know, I got this, I got this. What do you say to somebody who says that? Does it really take a lot of money? Well, it's a lot of money is relative. And I think the key thing is it's relative to what you're going to spend. It comes back to what Cooper just said. You need to have a handle on what your expenses are going to be. And um, unfortunately, what we see is a lot of times people haven't really thought about that. I mean, we get out of the habit of just tracking our budget every every month or every year. 
get out of the habit of looking at how expenses have changed over time, maybe just how our healthcare has gone up or our auto insurance or whatever that may be, utilities. So we have to get a handle on that. And then is it a lot of money? Sure. I mean, just look at what you spend per year. We all spend a lot of money. Now it's a matter of how do I make sure I have enough income? And I, I think it's easy for us to confuse money with income. I need income to pay bills, right? That's how I pay my bills is with, just like when I'm working with my income. I don't go sell my house in order to pay my bills. I don't sell a piece of property to pay my bills. I use my income. It's the exact same thing in retirement. So how do we determine what that income should be? And it needs to be relative to our expenses. And that sometimes is difficult. Do you find people feel like, I mean, I tell everybody that, you know, if I've been watching a a 60-inch HDMI, you know, flat screen or these new curved screen TVs, and all of a sudden I expect to go to retirement and watch the 12-inch black and white, that's not good retirement. That's right. That's not that's not a good lifestyle. How do you help somebody get through that? Because we do think, well, if I'm going to retire, I got to quit. I got to stop and sit on their front porch and rock. That's not retirement. Right. Well, fortunately, it's it's helping them have a picture of what they want to do in retirement. You mentioned earlier planning ahead ten to fifteen years. That's critical because we've got more time to adjust at that point. And then, so the second part is is what is it they want to do? And, and as Cooper said, at what time do they want to do it? They may want to travel more early. I think we have to be cautious there. If we spend too fast, there might not be as much later on, and and we need to keep in mind longevity, how long we're going to live. That makes a lot of sense. When we come back, I want to ask you about health care costs and retirement, and even nursing home, possibility of nursing home. If you just tuned in, my guest today, David Rochester, he is a certified retirement income certified professional, and Cooper Smith, along with him, they're talking about retirement income, and when we come back later on, tips for buying a home, a new home buyer. And boy, I tell you what, Cooper's got them laid out for you. You do not want to miss that part of the program. If you've even thought about buying a house, Cooper's going to lay out some must-dos and some must-don'ts about buying a new home. Stay with us. You're listening, to, of course, to KWAM 990 and FM 107.9 The Voice. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is Talk Money. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, we're talking about the baby boom generation and they're thinking about retirement and you've got questions that maybe you should ask before you retire. My guest, David Rochester, Cooper Smith, we're going through this whole idea of 41% of those people that were retiring fear running out of money. And the baby boomers are concerned about maintaining a current lifestyle, their spending level, what they're going to do for inheritance, how they're going to handle parents or maybe children. It's a tough situation, and you got to think about it before you pull the string. If this is your year, uh, David's kind of given us some ideas behind what to do. David is a retirement income certified professional. Cooper Smith is a financial planner at Shoemaker Financial. We're walking through your questions, and the question that I want to start with, David, in the second half of the program, what about health care costs? Because honestly, that is the question I hear most often. It is the most confusing, the most concerning, the most whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> it is a problem. What do you do with health care costs? Well, 
you know, in the days when we all used to think we were going to retire at 45, 50, 55 years old, I think health care costs wasn't as big of a concern. Uh, but today, as you as we all know, the cost of, of health insurance and, and just health care costs has, has skyrocketed. So more and more people are looking for how do I offset that cost, which leads most of them to wait till at least age 65 to retire. Because at 65, you qualify for Medicare Part A and B, which most of the time will reduce your cost. Now, you have to pick up some supplements or something like that, but that is a, a good way to manage those health care costs. Now, second part of that is I, I think we've got to think about the things that Medicare does not cover. And one of the primary ones is what we call long-term care. My parents call it nursing care because they taken care of their parents and they took care of their parents and for generations. Families now are spread out all over the continent around the world. So, you know, we're not at a point where we can really rely on a family member to see after us when we become frail. And as we've said earlier, people are living longer. In fact, what we're seeing that is one out of every six, uh, four sixty-five years, so about twenty-five percent, are anticipated to live past the age of ninety. I've got multiple clients who are over the age of ninety, and I've got at least one I know of who's over the age of one hundred. In fact, just turned one hundred and six this past week. Right, congratulations! So people are living a long time now. I know in her instance, she she retired or was out of the the workplace by age sixty. So that's forty-six years. She's been retired, and she's probably beaten the curve significantly, but a lot of cost involved in that. And when we talk about long-term care costs, nursing home costs, that is a big cost that most people don't anticipate or don't plan for. They haven't set aside money or put programs in place to offset that cost. What would you say to somebody, because that around the coffee table, around the dinner table, around the breakfast table, around whatever, is a topic that seems to be... What do I do with this? What should I do? And how do you guide them, David? I mean, that I, just where do you tell them? What do you do? I know you call it probably call Shannon in the office, but what is it that what would you what would be the words of wisdom that peril of wow? This is what they ought to do. Is there something that you say, or is it just kind of? I think like, it's a question, and that and it's this: if you get to the point, and statistically you will, to where you need some type of assisted care, skilled care, how are you going to pay for that? Now. Most people still believe that Medicare is going to pay for that, and that is not the case. Medicare does not pay for that care mm. after a certain number of days, and that's a very few days. So there needs to be a program in place. And I think the other thing to add is, is have you ever had to take care of anybody who had a need for care as they became older? You know, I, that's a great point. I'll, let me segue into the thought here because I was going to share about that. I think I have a understanding, a better understanding than I did, say, five years ago about the needs of caregivers today and how we think, well, we can do that. But used, when our parents or grandparents took care of people living in the home, that per- person didn't live that long. Today, as you said, they, you know, there's people living longer. They may have be frail or not have good health, but they do live longer than they did, say, 50, 60, 70 years right. ago. That's a problem for a lot of homes, a lot of households that they need to plan for. More and more people are, are, are living or, or have family members who have had Alzheimer's, dementia, stroke. They're still physically healthy, but mentally 
they could have that for a long period of time and need a caregiver. David, you've done a great job of helping us understand questions that we should be asking ourselves or going through before we retire. You're talking about <coughs> how critical is it to know the right investment? Should you plan on taking Social Security before 65 or 66 or 70? They do some planning there. And, you know, what about fear of spending your principal? David says, don't worry about it. Think through it. It's about total income, all of the income coming in. So that's important. you got to live to long enough to make sure that the income's there. I have a client that says his only objective in life is, as far as retirement, to live to the last dollar. He writes the last check. He goes in the casket. Kids get nothing. That's his thought process. I, you know, I don't know if I agree with that, but that's his way of doing it. So that's his plan. Right. All right. I have Cooper Smith. We're going to talk about it here coming up. Now, David, you've done a great job. Stay with us. Don't walk off because I want to get some better insight with you. But, Cooper, welcome to the program, sir. You've been contributing. You know, here's the whole idea, this tip for first-time buyers, home buyers. And I know you've done a lot of research, uh, put together a lot of thoughts into this. Some of this comes from an article written by Emily Crone titled, Tips for first-time time home buyers. So we're kind of using her title, but you've done an enormous amount of research. So help me with it. What is the first thing you say about tips for buying a home? Sure, and uh, thanks for having me, Jim. I would say that one of the the first and mo- most important things to do would be to save for a down payment, and not only that, but to start early. So down payments can be expensive. Most people, typically first-time home buyers, think that you've got to save that twenty percent for your mortgage. Um, But that's not actually the case. There's a lot of lenders that will offer you less than that. And there's actually first-time home buying programs uh, that will allow you to put down as little as 3%. But even uh, keep in mind that if you are going to put down less than that 20%, it can mean higher costs, things like private mortgage insurance. Um, But even that small down payment can still be hefty, right? That can still be a big amount, even if it is 3%. So some good tips for that would just be automated savings. You know, I, I think that's such a good point, and I and I, and I say this: if I had, if I could look at just a group of millennials and and say, okay, first time home buyers or home buyers, uh, save money for the house. That's a good investment instead of buying the fifty thousand dollar truck. Right. That's Definitely. just you know, look at the don't don't put them in equal. They're not even in the same page. They're two completely different things. I've got a lot of clients that would probably argue against oh, sure that. Oh, right, right. I'm sure they will. You know, but I'm, I I'm tell with you, you at least. You know, the driving the truck is a depreciating asset. The house is an appreciating right. asset. All right. When we come back, I've got Cooper. I've got him zeroed in on first-time homebuyers, some tips. He's going to talk about credit. Is it important? You think? Stay with us. I'm Jim Schumacher. You're listening to KWAM 990 FM 107.9. This is Talk Money. If you have questions you'd like to have answered on the program, email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. The millionaire Robert Reed Church, Memphis's most prominent business leader and philanthropist at the turn of the last century, was the product of an interracial union between a steamboat captain and an enslaved seamstress. During the Civil War, when he was forced to be a cabin steward on a Union steamboat, Church married a former slave named Louisa Ares. After the war, the couple started a number of businesses that became a great source of wealth for the city as the years progressed. But their success did not come easily. During the race riot of 1866, Church was shot in his saloon and left for dead. But he recovered and resolved to remain in Memphis despite the violence. After surviving the yellow fever epidemic, 
Church used his own money to build the public park and auditorium on Bill Street, the first major urban recreational center in the nation to be owned by an African-American. The auditorium became a center of Memphis civic and cultural life. W.C. Handy was employed there for a time, and it was the site chosen for President Theodore Roosevelt's visit to Memphis in 1902. In 1906, Church founded the first African-American-owned bank in Memphis in the 20th century, and during the panic the next year, he avoided a run on his bank by placing bags of money in its windows to demonstrate that he had enough money to pay back his customers. Throughout his years in Memphis, Church was the most active philanthropist in the city. He not only purchased the first bonds issued by the city after it declared bankruptcy, but also saved local church property from being seized when he paid off their creditors. In a marvelous coincidence, Church died in 1912, the same year his former employee, W.C. Handy's hit song, Memphis Blues, was introduced to the world. This has been another Mid-South History Moment. Brought to you by Shoemaker Financial. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large-cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and were redeemed to maybe worth more or less than when originally invested. And now, back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. My guest is Cooper Smith. We are talking about tips from first-time homebuyers. He's done an enormous amount of research on this subject, and he's got some that comes from an article by Emily Krohn, and it's titled Tips for First-Time Homebuyers. But he just we decided we'd just use the same title, but we want to definitely give her credit. But Cooper, when you before the break, you really we talked about saving for a down payment. For do the savings instead of buying the truck, mm-hmm. and you said you've got friends that probably would argue with right. me, and I see that I do that because sometimes we want that. Hey, you know what? I can't buy a house, but I can buy a truck. Mm-hmm. I can do. But really, you're talking about trying to help someone do some really planning because a home purchase. And that savings for a home purchase is a big investment, mm-hmm. and it's an enormous investment because it helps them. They can. I used to have a friend of mine when we we were very new in buying it. In fact, my first home, his first home, and he had a mindset of buying a home and then holding it for about two or three years, buying, selling, mm-hmm. and move. And he did great. I'm not that way. I'm I buy it and live there 25 years. You know, and I mean, but he he really had a mindset. So it's up to the individual. But we just don't encourage the truck versus the house. The house should win every time. Right. Yeah, I'd say so. And delayed gratification is really the name of the game when it comes to this. It's a lot easier when you see that shiny truck oh, out sure. in your driveway. But, you know, I, I would rather have that house so that later on down the road I could park the truck in the driveway <laughs> of that house, right? <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's part of discipline. Mm-hmm. It's part of discipline. The second tip that you would say to people, what would you say? So I would say the next tip is to be mindful of your credit. So we've talked about credit before on the show, but that's a huge factor when it comes to getting uh, your mortgage, not only does it determine whether or not you're approved for the mortgage, uh, but it can also affect different things like your interest rate, the terms of the loan. So obviously you can see that that's a huge deal. Uh, So check your credit before you start. You know, one of the things, and I hate to beat the truck Mm -hmm. to death, you know, but if I've got a $45,000 truck note that I got to pay seven months, seven years for, that might hinder me from buying a house. Oh, yeah. They're going to see that. When they go and pull your credit, they're going to see that all that money is going away each month and they figure, well, that's money that he could be spending on this house. That's a great point. What's another thing? Um, I would say another is to compare multiple mortgage rates. So a lot of first-time homebuyers think that 
It's maybe the same price if you go to get a mortgage from anybody, you get the same interest rate from everybody. Um, but that's not the case. Actually, according to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, if you shop out those rates from at least three different lenders, you can save more than $3,500 during your first five years of your loan. So obviously you can see it is imperative that you compare those rates from different And lenders. that can be used in any way you want to when you talk about that kind of that kind of saving. So maybe a uh, down payment for that for truck. For the truck. That's right. <laughs> All right, so we want to you know save for a down payment, be mindful of your credit, compare multiple mortgage rates. David, when you bought your first house, what what was the idea? I mean, you know, you're talking about you're married to Miss Leslie, you're getting all excited about it. What were you thinking about when you were buying? Well, I've had a few houses now, Jim, and I'll tell you this. My my biggest thing was I don't want to spend too much and get myself over my head in debt. I hear you. you. And being able to pay for it. But one thing that I learned early on, and I grew up in a family um, that, that was involved in real estate for 40 years, and that was trying to get a pre-approval letter from your lender or a lender, maybe multiple lenders, back to Cooper's point, gives you an idea of what you can afford. And I say an idea, that doesn't mean you go to the max limit, but an idea of what you can do there. And I think also it gives you leverage over potential buyers who haven't used that tactic. That's a great point. So so you go to your mortgage person or mortgage people that you're going to talk to, maybe it's multiple, and you just say, here I am, I you know, be transparent. And they give you a pre-approval letter that says, okay, now I know this is my, kind of, as you said, limit. Right. And so you don't get out there, because I hate to say I'm guilty sometimes and get to window shopping, and boy, I say, ooh, look at the glitter here. I love this. I love this. Oh, I think we can afford that. And then they say, <laughs> you're kidding me. You're not right. even close. That would be a downer. But you need to understand also, you know, that lender is going to examine your finances. They're going yeah. to get your income. They're, They're going, going to get up. your assets. They don't just give letters. So they're going to examine it, be prepared for that meeting. Okay. Cooper, last thing you would say is a tip? Yeah, and David, that's actually a great transition into our last point. The last point is to pick a budget and stick to it, right? You don't want to be swallowed up by debt, have that huge mortgage payment every single month that's stressing you out. Um, And so to your point, like you also said, uh, that pre-approval amount, that's your budget ceiling. So that should be the most that you spend. So you should typically start that home buying process a little bit under that amount, Um, especially if you're going to be shopping in a competitive market. There's probably going to be a house that you see that you like. There's going to be other people bidding on it. And just your emotions could get in the way, right? You end up seeing it. You love it. Your wife loves it. You guys are willing to you know, maybe wait on the truck, whatever. But I, I would encourage against that, right? Uh, and that will really, that will really keep you from taking on something that you can't handle just because you let your emotions get in the you way. You know, when you talk about David, you said you've bought multiple homes, and I think if you've had that experience a couple of times, it's a little, it's still emotional. That's right. And I don't care how many houses you bought, it's still kind of that. Ooh, this is. Big. But if you're a first-time home buyer, Cooper, as you're talking about. That emotion can be, ooh, I mean, oh, yeah. it's, oh, this is the perfect home for us. This is, I can see the babies moving. I spend, you know, all that stuff. And let me tell you what, you can make a bad decision mm-hmm. and not really, and think you've gone through all that process. So let's go over these things one more time. You said sit down and save, do some saving for the down payment. That's critical. Number two, you said be mindful of your credit. Check it out. Know your credit. Maybe delay buying the truck so your credit's in good shape. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. Compare other mortgage rates. In other words, you said I could actually save $3,500 just by going out and, you know, maybe have two or three and just looking at it. Pay attention. Let some people bid on you, but manage your credit. Know what you got. And that David said, get a pre-approval order. Know what you can do before you look. Before you get out of your car and walk into the, you know, walk up that driveway or walk up that 
the sidewalk and say, this is the house. You want to know, can you afford it? Will the bank, and David, you said they're going to check everything out. And they're not going to just, you know, it's not just a pre-approval out or piece of paper. They've already checked you out. You know where you stand. And I think, Cooper, your last point is pick a budget, stick to that budget, stay on it, delay that gratification. If it's a buying a house, make that your priority financially at that time. Jim, one final tip, and this is for the guys out there. Make sure the house has a good garage so you have room to put all your stuff, your fishing equipment, <laughs> right. and your tools because you don't get to put those inside. Maybe that should have been the number one tip for you. Yeah, that's a great point. When we come back, there's some mistakes that you can make. And Cooper's done some research on giving us those. If you're a first-time homebuyer, mistakes to avoid. My guest, David Rochester, Cooper Smith, we're talking about tips for first-time homebuyers. I mean, this is great. Don't buy the big red truck. Save a little money. Buy this house. You're listening to KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is Talk Money. Podcasts for Talk Money are available for iOS mobile devices in the iTunes Store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. Financial advisors do not provide specific tax or legal advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your own specific tax or legal situation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. My guests today, Cooper Smith and David Rochester, we're talking about tips for new home buyers. David and, and Cooper have been doing a great job walking us through some things. Cooper, some of the mistakes that people make. I mean, they're. I mean, I've well, I've had them in my office. I'm sure you've had them in your where they think, oh, I didn't think about this. What am I going to do? What would you tell a new home buyer or even an experienced home buyer? What are some things to avoid? Sure. I'd say one of the biggest things is no savings for closing costs. So a lot of people think that you only have to save for that down payment, but closing chances are closing costs are coming as well. Typically, these can run about 2 to 5% of your loan amount, um, but you can actually shop out some of those expenses that you're paying for closing costs, things like your home inspection, maybe your homeowner's insurance. I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit later, but there's actually things that you can negotiate too. Maybe it's your realtor's commission. Uh, maybe you ask the seller to pay for a portion of those closing costs, but I just don't see people saving for those costs. You know, and I think the key is in some markets, when it's a buyer's market, you can do a more negotiation right. since you mentioned negotiations. But the reality is when it's a seller's mm-hmm. market and you talk about a while ago, people bidding on a house, which is actually occurring today, uh, it's tough to negotiate. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So that's something so you, they have to think about. What's another? Um, I'd say another is that you don't budget for those after-moving expenses. So chances are there's going to be a big, long list of future improvements. A lawnmower, you know. I mean, I can remember all of a sudden I looked at the grass and said, that grass is growing, and I don't own a lawnmower. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and all kinds of things, right? Not only do you have to buy the house, or you're just going to have an empty house. Right? So things like furniture, rugs, maybe new appliances, home improvements, things like that. A lot of times people don't think about how expensive those things are when you really add them all up. My first bedroom suit, as I walked in and looked at it, it my wife was all, and I realized, I said, this has got to go because it was her white bed. It was a canopy. It had little pink, you know, side flowers on the side. And I think, yep, yep, we're going to have to do some additional (laughs) budgeting because we're not going to, and I didn't even think about that, you know, because I mean, I normally don't got to do that. Right. And so, you know, so that became a real issue for quickly figuring out how can I get this bedroom 
swimsuit out of our bedroom. Right. So that's important. What's another good? So buying a home for today instead of for tomorrow. So it's easy to let your emotions get in the way and to think of houses that meet your needs for today. Uh, But if you're planning on starting a family or growing a family, consider some of the your needs in the future. Uh, It might be a wise idea to purchase a house that you can grow into. Uh, and I, really, the the rule of thumb I would say to a go by is think about if the house you are purchasing will fulfill your needs both now and in the future. So when you think about that, I mean, all right, I, I want to make sure that you're looking for you know the future, and that's important. David, when he's mentioned negotiate, you've bought multiple houses. How is it more difficult in a buyer's market? I know it is, but what are you? What would you tell somebody about negotiation? Okay, well, it's more difficult in a seller's a seller's market. market. I'm right. sorry, yeah. So it's a little hard if you're in a bidding war to do that. But but we've said this earlier. Don't get caught up in the emotion. Uh, it's kind of like it's not a white sale. You're not trying to grab it at the last minute. Keep your options open. Have multiple houses you're considering, but keep in mind negotiation and, and let your realtor know um, that you're willing to negotiate to a point. But you do have a point. I I, I think that is. You know, if you haven't negotiated something before, and you, what would, would, Cooper, would you say to them to go ahead and get them a real estate agent? Because remember, if it's the seller's real estate agent, that seller's real estate agent's working for the seller, mm-hmm. and you're sitting there. Do you encourage them to find their own real estate agent or so, get somebody to go with them to negotiate? So, so I know for me personally, I would feel comfortable having that negotiation conversation. But if you had somebody else that maybe didn't feel as comfortable wading through those waters, I could say that that would be a good idea. That's something I think that so many people forget. Seek help. Mm-hmm. Seek wise counsel. Right. I know I've always said, if I'm in an area that I haven't done before, no use me wading in and let the sharks consume me. Right. Get somebody to go with me. Give me a chance to do that. What's the last thing you think about? So it, the last thing that I see people doing is not buying suitable homeowner's insurance. So homeowner's insurance is going to be one of the things that's required when you go to purchase a home. Um, and as stated previously, you've got the ability to compare different rates from different carriers to find not only the best price, but the best coverage for you. So that's really important to know what you're covered for. Um, things like flood insurance are not covered by homeowners insurance. So you're, if you're living in a, a flood area or flood zone, that's be something important to take into account. Um, but just really, you know, you spent so much time and work and energy saving for this house. It's, it's a good idea to protect it as to well. To make sure that you're protecting that's your right. investment. That's right. That's a great point. Let's review what you say as far as those thoughts of mistakes no savings for closing costs. That's something you don't do. Just to save the money. You right. expect it to be there. You said somewhere between 2 to 5%. Mm-hmm. It could be negotiated, but, but save for be it. Off to have and it. then no budgeting for the after-move-in expenses, the lawnmower, the refrigerator, all those things that you think, ah, I forgot about that. So save the money for that. Buying a home today, instead of looking, you know, buy it not just for today, look for the future, something you can grow with and develop and move into. Negotiate. That was another one you said. And then, of course, buying a suitable amount of insurance. So important in today's world. Definitely. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Cooper. Thanks, David. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. You've been listening, of course, to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. My guests, David Rochester and Cooper Smith. If you'd like to talk with them personally, call them at 757-5757. We hope you've enjoyed today's program as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. And thanks always for listening. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com to find today's program on 
podcasts or past programs, go to the iTunes and, of course, search for Shoemaker Financial. And be sure to like us on Facebook. We would definitely appreciate it. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and thanks for listening. This is Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker, David Rochester, and Cooper Smith are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Thank you.